Ah, there you are. And just in time. Playful spooks have interrupted our tour. Please remain seated in your doom buggy. Evening, mateys. The name's Roger. Jolly Roger to ye. <laughs> We're going to bring ghosts from all over the world, but we haven't got the ghosts in there yet. We're out collecting the ghosts. When hinges creak in doorless chambers. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to W Radio. Your information station. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this, my friends, is show number 88 for the week of October 12th, 2008. We're going to start off this week with our tribute to the Adventurers Club. And rather than just look at what it was, its rooms and shows, we're going to explore the club like never before. Because if you think you knew everything there was to know about the Adventurers Club, you might be a bit surprised. Joining me this week is a world-renowned Disney historian and author, Jim Corcus, who's going to share his exhaustive research into the history and details of the club and the stories behind the stories. We'll go way back and examine it from the very beginning, from concept to drawing board changes, its creators, design, and so much more. Moving from one party to another, we'll next head over to Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party, as George Taylor and I tell you all about this special event, what you can do while you're there, tips to get the most out of the party, and why we think it's one of Walt Disney World's best events. I'll play more of your voicemails at the end of the show after some brief announcements and updates. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Mr. Pleahall, see, even there. Well, what do we do with Oh, yeah, I know lots of history about the place. My, my, my father, Amy Thaddeus Pleahall, is on the track down there. Oh, my gosh. You want a grade? I'm, I'm not supposed to take food from strangers. Oh, uh, well, we'll make sure I'm not strange Okay, anymore. okay. As we're all very well aware of by now, September 27th, 2008 marked the end of an era as the Adventures Club had its final hoopla and the club's members, both old and new, gave one last kungaloosh. And for 20 years, the club and its cast of memorable characters entertained, interacted with, and left a lasting impression on guests in what was arguably one of Walt Disney World's most unique entertainment venues. So today... We want to look back at the club, not as like a eulogy, but more in celebration of what it was and what it meant to so many people. But we're not just going to look at the club as you saw it when it closed. 
we're going to take a close look back, and way back, as it were, at its very beginnings, to the stories behind its many interesting stories. And to explore the club with me is my friend and internationally recognized Disney historian Jim Corcus. He's also a published author on a number of definitive books on Disney history and animation. He's an award-winning teacher, an actor, professional magician. He's probably going to be in Cirque du Soleil next week. He's he's done so much more. He's presented uh, to countless people and events nationwide. So it's a pleasure to welcome my friend Jim Corcus to the show. Jim, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, Lou, the, the pleasure is all mine. As you know, I, I'm, I'm very honored to have autographed copies of... Uh, both of your books and your your CD on my uh, uh, bookshelf. I constantly use them for for reference, and I constantly uh, recommend them to all the Disney fans who say, "What should I have in my Disney library?" I say, "Go to Amazon, get those." Wow, we're done. The interview's done. That's all I need to hear. <laughs> that kind of rousing endorsement from Jim Corcus. Thank you. I, I really do appreciate it. Uh, I'm honored to have my books as part of your very, very, very extensive collection. So. But And to that end, I'm really looking forward to exploring the club with you because you've, mm-hmm. probably more so than anybody, have spent a great deal of time, especially recently, visiting the club and not just to research and partake of the beverages, but to speak to a lot of the people who were involved in the creation of the club itself. Tell us a little bit about some of your recent research. Well, I'd, I'd be uh, happy to, Lou, and, and I'm, I'm only uh, regret that it took me so long to go and uh, uh, do this uh, research. You know, the, the whole Pleasure Island concept literally came from the fact that uh, there was an entertainment venue in, in Orlando that was very, very popular. It was called Church Street Station. In 1972, um, Bob Snow uh, started to think that, you know, you could have a series of, of nightclubs and, you know, nighttime activity because you were having so many people come in because of the opening of uh, Magic Kingdom. By 1985, Church Street Station uh, was the fourth most visited tourist location in the entire state of Florida, right behind Walt Disney World and uh, SeaWorld and Busch Gardens. Church Street Station was number four, pulling in uh, 1.7 million visitors a year. And so um, Disney saw a lot of money and a lot of uh, tourists going off of Disney property at night you know, to um, go experience that. And so they determined that, you know, they could recreate that in a Disney way on Disney property. And um, as they took a look at the aerial view of the land, they saw that little peninsula uh, right next to the Empress Lily. Now, Michael Eisner's original plan was that was going to be created like a New Orleans square. And so the Empress Lily would have been this New Orleans uh, paddle wheeler that had had docked, and then there would be a a New Orleans-themed resort and a a shopping area. And again, very similar to like New Orleans Square at at, uh, Disneyland. Well, that fell by the wayside, although uh, Port Orleans eventually got developed. And they took a look at that, and they realized that, you know, we could cut, you know, that little piece of the peninsula uh, sticking out there, and we could have an island. Because Imagineer uh, Chris Carradine, who uh, was originally involved with the project, was in love with uh, Granville Island in Vancouver. And Granville Island in the late 70s was uh, this manufacturing district that had uh, fallen into disrepair and all that. 
but all of the buildings had been rehabbed now into uh, theaters and uh, restaurants and shops, and it was very, very popular, but the outside still had these warehouse uh, type of buildings. And so uh, Carradine took uh, a bunch of the Imagineers up there to take a look around, and they determined they could create that same type of um, legend, that same type of history on Disney property. And so as a result, we, we come up with the legend of Meriwether Adam Pleasure. Yeah, so many people, I think, they, they don't realize that like everything in Walt Disney World, there's a whole story behind the island as well, and it's not the Pleasure Island from Pinocchio. I think some people mistake initially when they see that. Um, and the legacy that is not just about Meriwether Pleasure, but it's very, very detailed and very intricate and really explains sort of everything that you see and interact with on the island. Uh, you're, you know, you're right that uh, a lot of people immediately when they hear Pleasure Island, they think of uh, the Pleasure Island in uh, the animated film Pinocchio. But it has absolutely no relation to the Pleasure Island that was created because in the animated movie, Pleasure Island was a place where young people went and they smoke and they drank <laughs> and they got wild and they made jackasses of themselves, you know? So it had no relationship to, to what Disney created. Well, actually the name Pleasure Island from the animated film encouraged Disney, but they realized they couldn't do it the way that it was done in the animated film. So they came up with this uh, worldly adventurer, Meriwether Adam Pleasure, uh, who was going to be sort of a mixture of William Randolph Hearst, you know, who had San Simeon and had collected all of these odd artifacts and treasures from around the world in one, uh, one location, and also a little bit of uh, Thomas Edison uh, with Menlo Park. And Thomas Edison, a great inventor. And so they, they mixed a, a, a little bit of all of that together and felt, okay, what we're going to do is every Disney tells stories. So every one of these buildings, all of this area, is going to be part of a gigantic story, and it's going to reinforce that story. And to help that out, uh, they created this whole mythology, which became very, very elaborate, and eventually not very functional at all, because it, it went off on so many tangents and was so contradictory, uh, you know, you couldn't bring it all together. They were hoping that guests would understand it because they put plaques on the island. Uh, there were 27 plaques originally uh, on the island, you know, on each of the buildings and on the bridge and all of this uh, to help explain that process. However, it never occurred to them that these plaques were black and people would be seeing these at night and that they were oftentimes put in out-of-the-way, ordinary places, you know, where it's like, oh, it's around this corner here, and, and, and what is this? And the fact that people on Pleasure Island were drinking. <laughs> and so they weren't paying attention. Oh, well, let me find six more plaques and find out what this story. And so even the cast members um, in their original welcome book were given a copy of each of the plaques to hopefully help them understand uh, what that story was, but um, the story became uh, very, very convoluted. Would you like me to do sort of a Cliff Notes version of it for those people who may not know? Give us the Reader's Digest condensed version of these, but I, a quick story. I will tell you that I have walked around Pleasure Island and I've looked for the plaques during the day and I'll ask a cast member, do you know where the, the plaque is describing this building? And I get that same funny mm -hmm. look that I got pretty much all the time during high school, but that's beside the point. 
<laughs> well, actually, Lou, you're not alone in that because, again, some plaques were inside. So, for instance, the one for the Portobello Yacht Club was inside, but some were outside, or some were around a corner, or some were over by the the uh, the water. And so, you know, unless you knew exactly where to look, you know, I, I guess they were hoping that you would just you'd be so excited you would just stumble upon these things by accident, and then hopefully put the story together. Yeah, put your drink down, folks. We're going to go walk around and find the rest of these plaques so we can really understand where we are and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the Reader's Digest version of the story is that Mary Ad, uh, Meriwether Adam Pleasure uh, was a uh, Pittsburgh entrepreneur, and he came down uh, with his family on the Empress Lily, uh, which was called originally the uh, Pleasure Princess, apparently. And the, the steamship... Uh, uh, paddle wheeler pulled up uh, by the island. He saw this island and he thought, this is great. This is where I can create, you know, my own domain. I, I won't be uh, hampered or structured by anything else. And so he created his uh, canvas and sail making um, uh, company. And the very first building he built on the, the property was, was to support that. But uh, he came down with his wife, Isabella, who supported all of the arts and uh, his two sons, uh, Stuart and Henry, and his uh, young daughter, Miriam. And so it was pretty crowded on the, uh, on the Empress Lily there, and so they built uh, a house, and that's what the Portobello Yacht Club is. And the, and the plaque still exists today inside there, if you want to go take one last uh, picture of what a Pleasure Island plaque looks like. And uh, so that was going to be their house, but what happened is pleasure was this great adventure and he was bringing in all of these artifacts and books and all this and so literally his wife said uh, there's only going to be room for us or for your collection so you've got to move your collection out so he literally had to build you know some place to house all of these things so uh, she wanted it far away from their house so on the other side of the island built the adventurers club in 1932 um, for all of his cronies and uh, all of that to, to house all of this uh, uh, stuff. And uh, right next door were the Avigators, which were Florida stunt pilots. And they did an import-export business, but they also uh, took all of these adventurers on their trips, you know, to faraway places and, and uh, uh, brought them back in. Now, by 1937, what had happened is, uh, you know, this was getting pretty expensive. And so they decided that even though this was a private club, they would hold an open house so that, you know, hopefully they could pay off the mortgage, uh, you know, for the building, um, one drink at a time. And um, so uh, the Adventures Club uh, thrived for, for quite a while. Unfortunately, in 1941, uh, on an adventure uh, uh, to the Antarctic with his daughter uh, Miriam, who was then 18 years old, uh, their ship... Uh, the domino was uh, lost at sea, and as a result, uh, the uh, club closed. Uh, Isabella Pleasure uh, passed away in 1949. Uh, she had been holding, um, you know, uh, dramatic readings and all in, in what is now the Comedy Warehouse, and the business was turned over to the two sons, um, Stuart Pleasure, who just loved the wildlife and, and spending, and uh, Henry who was sort of a mad genius. He created this uh, little computerized uh, um, uh, robot. But uh, because of this, they had no business sense. 
it went bankrupt by 1955, and uh, so they were going to have to sell. But before they sold, Hurricane Connie came and devastated the entire island, blew everything apart, blew things, you know, scattered it all over uh, Lake Buena Vista. That was the exact same hurricane that changed Placid Palms into Typhoon Lagoon. And so uh, for decades, this was lost, and for some reason, nobody knew or remembered it was there. But in 1987, the Imagineers discovered it on Disney property and decided, just like Granville Island, that they were going to rehab some of these buildings and reopen some of these buildings. And so uh, we had the official reopening of uh, Pleasure Island in uh, May uh, 1989. Uh, to honor, uh, Pleasure was known as the Great Funmeister, and he said, uh, fun for all and all for fun, and so that legacy now continues. Except now it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, well, it did. <laughs> <Into> <laughs> September, that's, it's gone, it's gone. <laughs> in 2008, his great-grandchildren came in and decided that uh, maybe this was not the best use for these clubs. <laughs> there you go. See, and, and, and again, that's just, as, as long-winded as all of that is, that's just the Reader's Digest version. The, the official version goes on for like 20 pages, and there are more um, twists and turns. And believe it or not, grandchildren are mentioned, and some of them were involved with some of the buildings. And to make this even worse, later when it was determined that it was going to be New Year's Eve uh, every night on Pleasure Island, they rewrote the story so that Pleasure had been born on New Year's Eve, and his sons had been born on New Year's Eve, and he discovered Pleasure Island on New Year's Eve, but his daughter was born in February. And so Pleasure realized that the world was out of sync, so he had to create a place where any day could be New Year's, so he could bring it all back into, you know, synchronicity there for, <laughs> right. for that, and nobody understood that storyline either. <laughs> But it worked out well, and it gave people an excuse to come and party and have fireworks. But like you said, that actually wasn't the original concept. Go ahead and tell us what they were originally going to plan on celebrating before they had to go and change the entire storyline. Well, actually, the, the original storyline was that a spaceship was going to land, and it was going to land actually just outside of the, the Adventurers Club, where the West End stage eventually ended up. And in fact, if you take a look at the... Uh, uh, plaque, the original plaque for the West End stage, it was originally created because Pleasure was uh, sending off signals from the top of uh, Zephyrs to welcome alien visitors to come uh, and visit. And so the spaceship was going to land at the West End stage, and it would be Christmas. It would be Christmas every day. Yeah, don't know if he could have gone as far with that, maybe. <laughs> you could have gone. <laughs> well, Somebody, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's certainly not with the drinking. You're not going to sell, uh, you know, unless you're selling a lot of eggnog or wassail or whatever, There, you know, it's not going to work as well. Yeah, and we can, I mean, we could literally spend hours talking about the original Pleasure Island and the clubs and the concepts, and maybe one day you can come back and we can go through that because I think it's fascinating. I think a lot of us that remember when it first opened, um, how excited we were. And I remember, just real quickly, I remember when they announced that Pleasure Island was coming, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that thought, you know, this just does not seem like the typical Disney type of thing. There's no characters, there's no... This is like a serious adult-only nighttime area. Well, uh, basically it was announced 
uh, July 1986 on the Empress Lily, and uh, Michael Eisner was there, and they had the model uh, for Pleasure Island, and they had uh, two performers. They had Madame Zenobia, mm-hmm. who was going to be the original hostess for the Adventurers Club. Actually, she was going to be the hostess for a magic club that evolved into a jazz club that eventually evolved <laughs> into the Neon Armadillo. When Michael Eisner uh, stopped by Church Street Station and saw the Cheyenne, uh, Cheyenne Saloon and saw how packed it was and how the huge line it was, it was like, oh my gosh, we got to have a country western club. So Madame Zenobia was moved over to the Adventurers Club, although she never really appeared there. And the other person was Captain Spike, who was going to be the host of Madison's Dive, which was going to be a wharfside uh, crab house. And it was going to be themed to Madison the Mermaid from from Splash. And Captain Spike would tell all these stories about his long-lost love, uh, Madison. And the person portraying Captain Spike was um, uh, Craig McNair Wilson, who at that time was the artistic director of SAC Theater, which was an improv theater group in Orlando. And uh, he later went on uh, to be a writer and uh, show director uh, for the... uh, Adventurers Club there, so that was very exciting. And, and Michael Eisner basically said that uh, at the press conference, he said, "You know, I've been looking around, and things are a little quiet on Disney property. You know, after dark, there's the fireworks at the Magic Kingdom, there's fireworks at at Epcot, but basically it, it's a little quiet. And so we think that for all of our guests and uh, conventioneers and Orlando residents, that we need a place where people can have a little fun after dark. Dot dot dot." in a nice Disney way. And then he announced that this was July 1986, that construction was going to start in August, and that uh, Pleasure Island would open in spring of 1988. Well, of course, it didn't open in spring of 1988, because by January of 1988, uh, the project was uh, was already over budget, 102% from its original budget, and 67% from its revised budget. So, obviously, clubs had to get cut. Uh, Space for clubs were cut. So, obviously, Madison's Dive disappeared. Uh, Other plans that they had. The Adventures Club is actually smaller than it was originally planned. And uh, Chris uh, Carradine, uh, who did some of the original design work uh, for the architecture there, uh, said that, okay, what the plan is, is these are only part of the rooms at the Adventures Club. There are other rooms that are off-limits. And what will happen is, once we're successful, we'll expand and open up those other rooms for, for people to go in. And, you know, that's, that's how that will, uh, will go there. Yeah, and the whole concept for the Adventures Club, and, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit, is, is very, obviously, very, very unique. But the one thing that always struck me about this, and I still, maybe kind of looking back on it, give me your take. You know, we all know the story about... Walt originally wanting the original Tiki Room in Disneyland to be more of an interactive theater. It was going to be a Chinese restaurant. There was going to be a Confucius in the middle that was going to interact with guests while they're dining. This almost seems, minus the dining part, a very sort of distant extension maybe of what Walt wanted people to be able to come and not just see the show, but be a part of it. And uh, yeah, actually, there originally there was going to be a restaurant attached to the Adventures Club, but when the budget went out of whack, that was one of the first things uh, that went. And uh, you know, you're right. We all talk about interactive entertainment now. You know, Bob Iger's talking about interactive. All this was a perfect example of interactive 
uh, entertainment and immersive environment for for all of the guests. And uh, yes, when Disneyland uh, opened in '55, one of Walt's plans was there was going to be the parallel street to Main Street called International Street, and it would dead end at a Chinese restaurant where you would have uh, Confucius who would be talking to you dur during your meal. And why Confucius? Well, because since he's Chinese, he'd have long robes, so that would, would hide some of the mechanics. And he's very old, so if he started to shake or whatever, well, he's an old man. <laughs> and Wally Bogue actually wrote a script and recorded uh, uh, some uh, Confucius bits of wisdom and, and wit there to, to use. And you're right, with the Tiki Room, uh, that was going to be sponsored by Stouffer's, and um, Walt originally had it planned. Uh, where it was going to be a restaurant. That's why you've got those four angles over there. And uh, fortunately, uh, wiser heads prevailed, and they realized that uh, on, on some little tests that uh, once the tiki room came to life, nobody ate. They were paying attention to the show. And then as soon as the show was over, they were feeling rushed to finish so that they would be pushed out so the next group could come in. So... Uh, that moved on. And, and even Club 33, Walt was going to have uh, that vulture uh, over there listening at people's tables. So if somebody said, gee, I need some more butter or whatever, then suddenly butter would magically appear. A, a, a host or hostess would come out uh, with that. So almost, uh, ah, gosh, uh, 20, uh, 30 years after Walt's passing, we're, we're running into... Uh, uh, probably what his dream was, was that interactive environment where you have audio animatronics, you have live-action performers, you have uh, things that you can uh, discover and, and, and uh, experiment with. And the, um, the inspirations for the Adventurers Club came from a couple of places. Uh, at the time, one of the most popular plays in Los Angeles was called uh, Tamara. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the play actually takes place in a living room and you're watching these performers, and then the performers go off into different rooms. And you, as an audience member, get to choose which people you're going to follow. And you follow that part of the story, and then every now and then they all come back into the living room, you know, to tie these storylines together and go off. And so it was a very popular play because people went several times because it depended what room you went into to, to see what perspective you were getting from this drama that was going on. Also, uh, another inspiration, of course, were the uh, adventurer clubs out there, and in particular, uh, the Explorers Club in New York. Uh, one of the uh, uh, show writers, the original show writers for the Adventurers Club, uh, was Roger Cox, and uh, he was very, very familiar with the Explorers Club, and in fact, he stirred things up one time and tried to get the uh, entire staff to revolt, and he had his... Uh, high school buddy helping him and I don't know if any of you are familiar with his high school uh, buddy I don't know if you've heard of him I, I've tried to look to see if he's uh, uh, you know uh, a tribute to him in the Adventures Club his high school buddy was Doug Kenny one of the original founders of National Lampoon hmm. and uh, writer for Animal House and Caddyshack so that was Roger's uh, idea of humor and all that he and, and Doug were stirring up things at the Explorers Club in New York and so a lot of that design and all that came down to uh, the Adventurers Club here in uh, Pleasure Island. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people know of, obviously, legendary Imagineer Joe Rohde's involvement in the club, and, and much of it's attributed to him. What they don't realize is how much he worked with Roger Cox to really create the show and the story and everything that we see. 
and and that's very true. You know, when I first started to do my research, I, I always thought, well, this is all uh, this is all Joe's for uh, for crying out loud, you know. And and everybody told me this was almost sort of like a uh, a tryout, an audition for doing Animal Kingdom. You know, Joe was brought in in uh, 1980, and uh, the first thing he did was actually make uh, models for Epcot, and he worked as a scenic designer on the uh, Mexican pavilion. Then he was brought in uh, to work on the new Fantasyland for uh, Disneyland. Then he worked on the Norway Pavilion at Epcot, and then from there to the Adventurers Club. And a lot of the design you see in there is Joe Rohde, because what would happen is uh, uh, once a month on Sunday, Joe at his Pasadena house would have what was called the Last Days of the Raj, R-A-J. And... Um, it was a celebration of, of explorers and uh, British colonization of, you know, exotic countries and all that. And they would all go to the uh, uh, Rose Bowl uh, swap meet in Pasadena. And they would pick up masks and they would pick up figurines and artifacts. And they all come back and all of that. Some of those things actually migrated into the Adventurers Club. So there's very much Joe's design sense there. However, the content, the storyline of, of who these characters are and how they relate to each other, that comes from uh, Roger Cox. Roger Cox was brought in uh, in uh, 1987, 1988 uh, to try and you know, bring all of this together and, and, and make sense of this. And uh, he had a, 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 an odd sense of humor. And uh, I'm sure that this name is, uh, and unfortunately, Roger passed away from cancer uh, last year. Um, but uh, for those people, if you try to Google Roger, you won't find much out there on the Internet. But you need to realize that uh, one of the characters he wrote was semi-autobiographical, and that was Emil Bleehall. That was actually a character that he created. And... Uh, uh, even though Roger was from Shaker Heights, Ohio, he thought Sandusky was funnier. So Emil is from Sandusky, Ohio. And uh, he literally did a huge pitch for uh, Michael Eisner and Dick Nunes and a bunch of other Disney executives that Roger referred to as Klingons. And he did the Balderdash Cup to show them, you know, how funny, you know, these characters could be and, and, and this entire uh, concept. And in the pitch, because I've heard it, there, there's actually a 15-minute video existing of, of Roger doing this and telling this story, in the pitch, he reveals, and I've never seen this anywhere else, that Emil's job in Sandusky, Ohio, was artistic director of the School of Modern Dance. Mm. So that's why he is training pigeons to tap dance. <laughs> so he goes through this entire presentation, and there's laughter, and there's nonsense. But he, Roger realizes that he's doing it just for an audience of one. And everybody's looking at Michael Eisner to see, is Michael laughing? Does, you know, Mike, you know, all of this. And he finishes it, you know, and there's laughter, there's applause. And Michael Eisner goes, that's too absurd. <laughs> now, Roger won't let this go. Roger goes, did you hear all of that laughter? Did you hear that applause? This is funny. This is going to work. This is in that all. And, and he goes on and he goes on and he goes on. And finally, Eisner goes, all right, look, if you're so glued to this, go ahead and do it. But you better be right. And then the first night when Adventurers Club opened and the Balderdash Cup competition goes on, the audience howled, and they enjoyed it so much, they didn't want to leave the library. And this was in those days when you went to see a library show, they would shove you out the back door, mm -hmm. you know? And 
they didn't want to leave. And so Michael came up to Roger and whispered in his ear, you were right, I was wrong. And Roger said, I never heard him say that ever again to anybody. <laughs> Get that on anywhere. tape somewhere. <laughs> but but, 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 but that, that's it. And so a lot of these characters, are, and especially their names, are based on people that Roger knew. So Pamelia Perkins, and I thought, Pamelia, what an, what an odd name. Actually, that apparently was one of his um, schoolmates from uh, Carnegie uh, Mellon uh, University. And he just collected all of these uh, names. And the very first Familia Perkins, the very first person to perform Familia Perkins at the Adventures Club was Paula Pell. Now, Paula Pell is the Emmy Award-winning writer and actress who is now on Saturday Night Live. She's the one who wrote the uh, Alec Baldwin sketch on Tony Bennett. She's still on mm. Saturday Night Live. She was the very first Familia Perkins. Um, Hathaway Brown is named after an all-girls school. He actually started his life as Armitage Campbell, and then for a while he was going to be Hamilton Beach, right. and then he became Hathaway Brown. Fletcher Hodges, there really is a curator named Fletcher Hodges, who for 50 years was the curator of the music of Stephen Foster. And we don't hear about him because, of course, he doesn't have the charisma and animal magnetism of Dave Smith at the Disney Archives. But uh, this guy, for 50 years, was this eccentric curator. And so, you know, all of this uh, uh, comes through. And so Roger brought all of this sense of, uh, of names and this uh, uh, larger-than-life. And, in fact, the actors were trained by watching uh, movies from the 1940s and uh, reading all of these books. They, they had this huge book to prepare with, and part of it just described all of the artifacts in the Adventurers Club, but with the Meriwether Pleasure storyline. So, uh, and, and, and here's one for you, up there on, and nobody can go there anymore, can they? But up on the zebra mezzanine, there's a, a photo, and underneath it has C.K. Dexter Havens, Jr. And that bothered me for a long time. I went, I know that name. Where do I know that name from, you know? Is that a Jim Backus character? Is that, you know, what is it? C.K. Dexter Haven? It turns out that's the name of the character that Cary Grant played in Philadelphia Story. And the same character appears in the remake uh, High Society, but that's where it starts. And that's a movie from 1940. And so all of these things are scattered throughout there. And a lot of that came from Roger. So, so Roger was, was the context and... Um, the text for all of this, and think of Joe Rohde as, as the paintbrush, you know, with, with all of the design. And uh, uh, he and his wife, uh, Mel, who wrote uh, uh, Making of Animal Kingdom, mm -hmm. uh, would go around every year, would take a, a round-the-world trip, you know, and, and take a look at these things and all that. And so that type of sensibility of, of different cultures and exotic cultures very much uh, in, in uh, um, presence there at the Adventurers Club. Going back to, to characters real quick, correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe I did have one too many Kungalushes. Wasn't there a guy in a monkey suit very, very early on yes. that's not there, obviously, and, anymore? And, and again, you know, everybody says guy in a monkey suit. Officially, <laughs> his official description was he was the missing link. His name was Marcel. The original performing matrix for the actors there, and... Um, Later, uh, in January 1999, 1990, Chris Oyen came in and changed the performing matrix so that it 
would work and be a lot smoother for the for the actors. But the original performing matrix that WDI came up with is that if you were a performer, you would play three different parts in the same night. So you might be Hathaway Brown, and then you'd be playing Otis Wren. But how do you get from one end of the club to the other, especially if you're Hathaway Brown out here, but now there's a Hathaway Brown in the library who's performing? You put on the monkey head. You put on the monkey gloves to do this. And so Marcel was supposed to be the missing link. He was also supposed to be a apprentice barman. So he would come in and he would bust tables and he would clean up and all of that until the union came in and said, you can't have that monkey bust tables and all of that unless you have the union people, their salaries <laughs> raised to the same level as entertainment. <laughs> so Marcel got to the point where he was just sort of sitting around. And then when they changed the performing matrix where you know one actor was basically going to play one role uh, all, every night, although they do play extra roles. So for instance, the person who plays Hathaway Brown always plays uh, Beazle the uh, genie head mm -hmm. in the treasure room. Um, you know, uh, Pamelia Perkins and uh, Samantha Sterling usually are Babylonia, that type of thing. And so what happened is when Chris Oyen came on board, he said, the monkey can't even talk. <laughs> if we get rid of him, we can bring in another character and we can bring in a female character. And so Chris created the character of uh, Samantha Sterling, the adventuress. And so they lost Marcel. Marcel went somewhere and... Um, there was also another part-time female character called Mandora, and uh, she was only part-time. And uh, the problem they had with that is, besides being an adventuress, she was also a um, chanteuse. She was also a singer, so she was wearing, you know, these very tight evening gowns. And unfortunately, in that space, you don't have a lot of privacy, and you're having people get into the story, and you're having people drink. This can cause some unfortunate experiences if you're wearing a very tight evening gown. So they got rid of Mandora, they got rid of Marcel, and they replaced them with um, Samantha Sterling. And the original Samantha Sterling uh, was Sheila Smith uh, Ward, and uh, she is probably the uh, longest surviving cast member. She was there uh, uh, performing that uh, last week uh, Adventures Club was uh, open. She's an outstanding performer, and... Um, very very talented and uh, um, obviously I know her and I'm glad there's a Samantha Sterling character there because I, it, it, she was supposed to be an Amelia Earhart type of right. character right, I was going to say the, the uh, cast member that performs her you'll see her pop up around property doing other special events and things and you, you look at her like I know her from somewhere and then yes. the light bulb finally goes off so yeah she's very popular with uh, uh, convention shows she's very popular uh uh, you know, uh, she was at the Comedy Warehouse uh, uh, for a while, and uh, her husband is uh, Terry Ward. Terry Ward is the magician who was in uh, uh, the Diamond Horseshoe for a bit and on Streetmosphere at um, uh, Disney uh, MGM Studios, now Disney's uh, Hollywood Studios. Uh, Terry Ward, sometimes known as Terrence Ward, one of the most outstanding magicians I've ever seen in my entire life. I went to a magic convention with him, and we were standing out in the hall waiting to see one of the legends of magic in there performing, and Terry was just playing around with a deck of cards, 50 people surrounding <laughs> to see what he was doing. So we, there are a lot of talented performers at, uh, at, at Disney, and, and that's another one of the reasons I'm sorry to see the Adventurers Club close, because that's just one more venue where... You know, we no longer have live-action performers, and that, I think, is, is very important.
I agree with you, and and we'll kind of we'll, when we wrap up, we'll talk a little about maybe you know the the demise of the Adventures Club and maybe the future. But you know, I, there were so many other elements of the Adventures Club that I enjoyed. Obviously, the shows, and there was the library shows, and the treasure room show, and the mask room show. Uh, again, with the mask that Joe Rody collected, not from his travels to you know Tibet, but his travels to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. Yes. And, and 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 Joe bragged about that. Joe bragged about it. But 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 again, to give Joe Joe his due, you know, he did travel around the world. But a lot of the things that he found weren't usable. You know, they uh, they were worm eaten or they wouldn't have survived. You know, uh, all of that. So by picking up those things from Pasadena swap meet and whatever, he could tell. You know, this looks authentic or this is is authentic, and you know, uh, this could work. Now the, the the unfortunate thing though was is that the special effects group that came in to work on those masks um, was uh, Technifex, and they said one of the hardest thing they had was because those were real masks they had to carve out the insides very delicately uh, to put in those mechanics you know so that the tongues would stick out or the eyes would move or the eyebrows would go up up and down and and all of that and they they said well we wish we had had custom masks. Uh, for that to happen. And you know, we talked about characters and names change. Uh, Arnie and Claude, and supposedly Arnie and Claude, that's a reference to Bonnie and Clyde, but in the original Imagineering uh, pitch, they were called Ned and Fred, and the official definition were they were lifetime partners. <laughs> now, what that meant, I don't know. I didn't ask and they didn't tell, but they're <laughs> lifetime partners there, and Arnie is the mask of comedy, and... Uh, uh, Claude is the mask of uh, tragedy, and very, very, very few uh, guests ever looked up to the upper left above their heads because that's where the camera was mm -hmm. that was taking a picture of the audience and all that. So when you had a performer in there performing, and then he suddenly turns around and the mask stopped, that's how the mask know they're watching on camera up there. Yeah, and uh, just as I spent on my last weekend there, my favorite places to just sort of hang out in the Adventures Club was the mask room and the treasure room. And you could just mm -hmm. sit in there, you could chat, you didn't have to worry about going anywhere, and then the, the performers would come to you, and mm -hmm. the, it would just kind of come to life, and that's one of the things I'm going to miss. But, you know... And, and did you notice around the, the, the main salon there, you've got treasure room, you've got mask room, you've got restroom. <laughs> <laughs> also, one of the most popular uh, rooms in the club, so... I'm glad you like that so much, uh, Lou, and, and, and I'm hoping as you do this interview, you drink some milk so that it'll splurt out of your nose as this happens here. <laughs> I would have offered you up a kungaloosh, actually. Oh, and, and, and there were two different recipes for kungaloosh. They, they switched in, in the year 2000, See, and I'm not I'm... sure why. I don't, I don't know whether there was a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a change in uh, sponsorship or... Or whatever, you know, just like Nestle's and, and Kraft over there at uh, at the land, but they they, they literally uh, changed and they they went to Captain Morgan Rum, so maybe that's uh, that's the official sponsor of, of Disney for Kungaloosh there, which I have no problem with. But I remember going and and well, you know getting a drink, and the original one had vodka and, and pineapple juice, and then I went later on and I got this frozen slushy thing with whipped cream. I said, "What is this?" And they said, "That's mm -hmm. a Kungaloosh." The closest thing I guess you can still get to it was, or you could have gotten to it, was a um, a jungle juice, which reminded mm -hmm. me of the old Kungaloosh's. But right, 
but there were so many changes that took place in the club. And I mean, between the characters and there's just the, the longest list of characters and, and the stories behind them and the shows that came out. And one of the things, Jim, that I used to love about this was if you really bought into the storyline, Disney would feed into it with you because they used to, to hand out postcards with... Um, a list of events that were going on in the night, and you had the Adventurer's Almanac, which was a four-page newsletter that you could actually subscribe to, and there were pins. I mean, they really sort of took the scope and the story and expanded it out. Well, they, they really uh, uh, made the guests uh, part of that story, and, um, you know, they had four letters uh, that Graves the butler would take around, and, and this was especially important in the first year that Adventurous Club was open, and um, Graves would come to you and give you this, this letter, and you would open it up, and it would be uh, addressed to something like Dr. Gabardine or whatever, and suddenly you were Dr. Gabardine, and the, the performers would come and interact with you as if you were Dr. Gabardine. Or, or if you were a woman, there was, uh, I believe it was uh, Wedgie Wishmeyer, and Hathaway Brown wrote you a, a love letter. And so now, you know, there, there's, uh, oh my gosh, Hathaway Brown's in love with her and, and all of that. And so you would interact uh, that way. The, the guests bought into it so much that they wrote to the characters at the club. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, Chris Oyen, who at that time was the uh, show writer and show director, uh, was spending a lot of his time literally answering these um, letters, you know, in character. And it was using up a lot of time, so he got someone from Guest Communications um, and uh, came up with the name uh, Bernice Smythe Fenton, who was the uh, special assistant to Pamelia Perkins. And so sometimes she would answer letters, but she sometimes didn't know what to answer, so she'd have to go to Chris and, and uh, do all of this. And so they created the Adventurer's Almanac. And the very first Adventures Almanac was, was called Volume 54, Number 1. And I said, Chris, if this is the first one, why is it Volume 54? And he says, well, I wanted to have that so that it seemed like it was going on forever, you know, uh, for that to happen. And so this, this little four-page new, newsletter w would have these stories, would invite guests to send in their tall tales. And, in fact, there were um, sometimes special events at the Adventures Club where you could come and bring your artifact and tell your story and the best one would be donated to the Adventurers Club. And, and the last time that happened was Lord and Lady uh, Reed donated a uh, magic carpet, a flying carpet, but they had seat belts on it because apparently they had flown in the carpet and hit a camel. So you always need to buckle up. And so that is up on the uh, first floor in the zebra mezzanine over by the uh, uh, bar up there, and it's hanging on the wall. That's the last donation, because then Disney Legal got a little worried about people donating things and Disney taking it, you know, for that to happen. But um, the Almanac came out um, for a while, and this was in the days before there were computers, and so all of this had to be hand-done, and all of the pictures were, were cut out, and the pictures came from a... Uh, uh, photo library in New York City that Disney had an arrangement with. So you got these generic uh, photos, and then you came up with a copy that you had to cut up and you had to paste, you know, uh, on a, on a dummy. And and some people who grew up, you know, doing school newspapers and all that probably know what I'm talking about. And it became very um, time-consuming, uh, uh, very costly, 
And so, unfortunately, when Chris left uh, the club, he, w he went on to uh, uh, direct over at the Comedy Warehouse for many years. Um, that left with him. But, yes, the guests became very, very involved uh, with, with all of this. And that's one of the things I noticed the last uh, uh, two months there were a lot of people who came in as regulars. And they had their, their favorites, you know, and, uh, and the favorites knew them. Yeah, and I'm actually holding my copy of The Adventures Almanac, number 54, issue one, which now I'm holding a little bit more gingerly than I did before since I know it was the first one. But they actually used to have membership meetings, and they would invite these people who, whether you were regular or not, who, if you were a subscriber, to come, you know, different times throughout the year, and they had food and drinks and things like that because mm -hmm. to give you that sense of community and that you were part of this this club. Right, and, and in fact, that was the whole um, entertainment uh, goal was uh, that guests should feel that they're not just voyeurs looking at, a, looking at a story or looking at entertainment. They are actual members of the club. That there's a party going on, and this has been going on for quite a while, and they're welcome. They've, they've been invited into the party and to be part of that party. So, uh, again, a very exciting uh, uh, Disney concept, you know, and very much in keeping with... Um, what Disney, uh, one of the Disney initiatives are uh, today, which is to get that interactive experience for the guests and that different experience. So that uh, generates, you know, return visits because, you know, I saw this, but the next time I come back, this could be different. Right. And there was a huge repeatability factor for the Adventures Club. So mm -hmm. obviously, you know, as soon as it's announced it's closing, there is this resurgence of love and nostalgia for it. And, you know, you talk about the club and, and you know, we talk about it here and you get excited because it's a show that you want to see and something you want to experience. Mm -hmm. So it begs the question, Jim, you know, what led to the demise? Why is it closing or why did it close? Well, I, I think there, there's a, a lot of uh, reasons behind it. And, and again, I think one of those is one that you touched on briefly there is, you know, why is that sudden resurgence at the end is that we all took it for granted. Oh, well, it's always going to be there, you know? Uh, I'm a California boy, and I will tell you that uh, uh, when I had to move out to Florida, suddenly I realized I better go take, you know, one last look at, you know, uh, where Walt's uh, ashes are, are interred. I, be I better go take, uh, you know, one last trip to the Tamashan. You know, these things had always been there, always available to me, but it, so I was going, oh, it's always going to be there. Uh, the Adventurers Club uh, part of the problem, of course, was the uh, pro forma that they, they had uh, set up where somebody could literally come into the club and stay all night and not even buy a drink, not even buy a soft drink, not even buy one of those $4 Coca-Colas. And, um, you know, you can't survive that way, especially when you have live-action performers. Uh, I talked with the manager of uh, Jekyll and Hyde's up in um, New York, and he said that he based that club directly on the Adventurers Club and the experience that he had there, except for the fact that he saw that it wasn't making any money, so he added in the restaurant so that money was coming in. And uh, I think the Adventurers Club suffered, as, as did some of the clubs on the island, in the fact that uh, it was almost sort of schizophrenic. You know, is this a club for adults? And, and again, it could get very racy at the Adventurers Club, especially later at night. Or is this for the entire family? You know, oftentimes I would be there and I would see uh, parents had dragged their kids in there, you know. And uh, sometimes the performers would make that joke of, you know, ask your parents about this later, you know. But, but you could tell that they were holding themselves back. You could right. see that sometimes the guests in there were a little uncomfortable, too, because they, 
now they had to pull back. They had to be on their best behavior. They had to be uh, adults, you know. And um, one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, Roy Disney, Roy O. Disney once said is that everybody who comes to, to Disneyland is 12 years old. And, and that's very, very true. But when you're a parent and you're there, it's a lot harder to be 12 years old because now you have to do those parent things as well, too. Right. And, and really, nothing screams good parenting like taking your five-year-old kid to a bar on a Saturday night at 1130. So, <laughs> Well, you know, uh, uh, Lou, we talked a little before um, uh, the interview here, and one of the original plans for Pleasure Island was that we're going to have an, a club area called 100 Acres, which would be uh, themed to Winnie the Pooh, and it would be a daycare center at night where, where parents could come to Pleasure Island. They'd drop the kids off at the daycare center, get drunk, and then go pick up the kids and drive home. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, there, there, were, there were problems uh, out there. And again, there were also problems, too, with first-time visitors, where you, you had to pay that entrance to get into the club. But if you didn't know what the club was about... You're a little hesitant, you know, I'm paying so much money already. Why am I paying for something I can't even see? I don't even know what this is going to be about. Yeah, I almost liked it better when it was the pay one price just to step on Pleasure Island because you you were buying the experience. You were buying what was going on on the street as opposed to, okay, you know, everybody come on through, everybody can shop, bring your kids, but now you've got to pay $22 to walk into the Adventures Club or to buy that multi-club ticket. Well, you know, I was I was talking recently with one of the people who uh, worked on the Matterhorn at Disneyland, and he said, "You take a look at at, at the uh, uh, queue line there." And I said, "Oh yes, it's the traditional Disney switchback back and forth." He says, "No, take a look. It, it's on two tiers, so you know you're starting up at the top, so it looks like it's shorter, but you're also looking down and you're watching how the load and unload works." So by the time you actually get to the ride, you know how to get on that ride, and you know how to get off that ride. And, you know, some of that still continues in Disney attractions. Tony Baxter and Splash Mountain specifically put that drop outside there, uh, not because it's just so exciting and it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to get your picture taken and all that, so that people standing out there could see that, and that's the worst part of the ride. And if you take a look at that and go, I don't think so. <laughs> then you're going to stand in line to see all those cute audio animatronics that you heard about. But at the Adventures Club, you're just seeing the outside. You have no clue. No clue. Is this going to be worth my money? What am I going to experience? What am I going to do? Right. You have no idea. And you, ha- and you did. You had to buy into it. And if you tried to sometimes explain it to people that had never been before, they look at you sort of quizzically. But if you went in there and you bought into it, much like you, you buy into the fantasy when you when you walk into the Magic Kingdom... Um, I think it made for a great experience. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. So I- I'm not asking you to try and, you know, to um, speculate on the future, but, you know, you, Jim Corcus, do you, would you like to see an Adventures Club type thing come back? Do you think it might come back in some form or fashion? Uh, abs- absolutely, you know, and, and I'm not uh, married to that one location. You know, they they could demolish that one location and rebuild Adventurers Club somewhere, whether it whether it's at Adventureland uh, in in the Magic Kingdom, or whether it's uh, uh, I was talking with uh, Charlie Ridgeway, who is a former Disney publicist, and he said, you know what would make this really successful is if you built it uh, right between the um, Grand Floridian and the Polynesian, you know, and you have a restaurant involved in there, you know. 
uh, all of that, and and you need to update the effects too because the effects they had were were great for 1989, but now we've gone to that that next level there, and I think an awful lot of exciting things can happen. And and as you know, it's it's very tight in there. You know, sometimes it's uncomfortably uh, tight, even though. Um, uh, as you go in the door, they have the little thing that says occupancy 504 people. I bet nobody ever read that. Uh, if you get 300 people in there, it's a, it's a very, very close experience. So, you know, uh, uh, to enlarge that, and I think all of the things that they've learned from this can, you know, uh, then be transferred. Um, I, it, I will just tell you that the last two months I, I spent an awful lot of time going there and I just fell in love with it all over again. Absolutely. And uh, somebody's got to get Charlie Ridgway back on the payroll because I like his idea and, lo- and location to, to where to put the restaurant. Um, well, because I asked Charlie, how, how did you publicize Pleasure Island? How did you publicize the Adventures Club? He says it was a nightmare, you know, because you couldn't do it in a short little uh, sentence or short paragraph soundbite out to the media. And, and he says, and especially as, as this whole Meriwether Pleasure, you know, storyline came up, and then he said what was worse is when things started to change. So you have that storyline about the fireworks factory, which um, uh, Meriwether Pleasure loved uh, fireworks, and just a, a, a stray ash, you know, from his cigar set and blew everything up. That's why it's a barbecue restaurant now. And, in fact, there are boxes from um, Fireworks Factory, crates from there, that blew all the way over to Typhoon Lagoon. So the next time you're over at Typhoon Lagoon, take a look uh, over there and uh, take a look at that. But now, when Fireworks Factory suddenly becomes uh, the wild horse, how, how does that fit into the story? Right. How does that, you know, how, how does that uh, work through? And here's a, here's a little something special for your, your listeners. The Adventurers Club still survives even if they tear down that that entire uh, physical location it still survives because if you go into the queue line of uh, the jungle uh, cruise at magic kingdom look immediately to your right and you'll see a crate addressed to the adventurers club and it has the actual physical street address 5198 hill street which is the uh, nobody knows that that name of that street is hill street but that's what it is that's why it goes up that way and um that's the address and as you go through the queue take a look because there's all also other artifacts that are addressed to the adventures club and once upon a time the fast pass uh section out there in front of the jungle cruise were done up like crates Mm -hmm. and they had little tags one was uh, to amel and one was uh, to pamelia but those tags are either missing in action right now or in uh, somebody's Disneyana collection there at home. <laughs> I was going to say, they're up on my shelf, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, Jim, I, I want to thank you so, so much for helping to explore and really celebrate the club. Sadly, it's posthumously. I hope that you'll join me again for some other segments in the future. Although, Jim, i got to ask, please be a little bit better prepared next time. <laughs> I, I know. I, I had nothing to say. I, I, I was grateful that you that you had these uh, questions so that you could could pull it out of me like someone uh, pulling uh, uh, teeth out. Well, I, I, as I hope your listeners can hear, I, I have a great deal of enthusiasm for Disney history, a great deal of enthusiasm for Adventurers Club, and I'm very much appreciative, even though the the club has, has uh, uh, closed, 
that uh, you've given me this opportunity to share, you know, some of these um, uh, historical facts that that I've discovered, so that other people maybe they can better appreciate, they can better under, understand the club. And again, who knows? The club's, you know, still there. Anything can happen. And at Disney, we all know every all plans are written in Jello. They can change <laughs> the very next moment. Absolutely. And listeners, if you ever have the opportunity and certainly the pleasure of meeting Jim or being able to hear him speak, go do it. And you can often find him at some of the NFFC conventions and meetings. It is going to see Jim is worth going to uh, any of those events. And, and Jim, uh, once again, I really, really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your thoughts and your memories and your such wonderful research with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Lou. wonderful time of year once again. It's a time of year when kids and grown-ups dress in sometimes ridiculous costumes and walk around their neighborhoods in the dark begging for food. But seriously, Halloween is one of my most favorite holidays of the year, and I am certainly not alone. And like most holidays, I can think of no better place to spend and celebrate it than in Walt Disney World. And in Walt Disney World, Halloween isn't just celebrated on All Hallows' Eve, but for 18 days from September through the end of October. And one of the best ways to celebrate the season is by getting dressed up in your favorite costume and enjoying the sights, sounds, smells, and of course tastes of Mickey's not-so-scary Halloween party in the Magic Kingdom. So this week, tell me explore exactly what the party is and what it has to offer for kids and kids at heart and proving that he actually does get his nose out from behind his books and steps away from the computer every so often and stops playing Guitar Hero 3 on his Xbox is George Taylor from the Imaginerding blog. George, I want to welcome you back to the show. Oh, oh, sorry, Lou. Candy in my mouth. Thanks a lot. Yeah, <laughs> still eating leftover candy from Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party, but I'm glad to be here nonetheless. Well, I appreciate you going down and, and researching the party specifically for the show. Oh, yeah, explaining the concept of a research trip to my wife while I was standing next to her and we're watching fireworks just didn't work at all. She she didn't buy into it, so I have to come up with something else. Well, I'm sure you were armed with your camera and your notebook and were taking, you know, very serious notes the entire time you went to the party, but when exactly did you go? How long did you go to the party? We went on uh, Tuesday night, September the 30th, which was kind of weird at the end of September to be going, but the... The Magic Kingdom was all decked out. I'm sure we'll talk about that. We went down for a week for a family vacation once, not a research vacation, and it just happened to line up with one of the parties, and it was a DVC discount night, so we got a discount on the ticket, and the kids were thrilled and uh, booked the tickets, and we're all ready for it. Cool. Now, was this your first Halloween party? 
Uh, at Disney, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean ever. I mean, I know when you were oh, a kid. Okay. You- <laughs> okay. Yeah. As, as a kid, there were several in high school. I didn't get invited to many Halloween parties, but this one I was allowed to go to. Yes. But this was the first one that uh, I had attended. My family had attended at Walt Disney World. Yes. Good. I, well, well, definitely. I want to definitely look into what you thought of the party and if it met your expectations and maybe what you expected beforehand. But we should probably start off by saying because I don't, we, we can't take for granted that everybody knows exactly what the party is and like i said for 18 nights in this fall actually technically it starts almost back in the summer really the magic kingdom is really transformed into a very very kid-friendly not so spooky halloween party complete with everything from special parades to fireworks to as george is going to attest to trick-or-treating and so so much more and like i said like you alluded to george it starts very very early it starts in early september and i actually went to disney at the end of august and the fall decorations and the pumpkins were already up then. Oh, yeah. The, the decorations were amazing. The the moment you – it actually starts before you get to the Magic Kingdom. The Ticket and Transportation Center, they've got displays up already. And the moment you hit after the ticket booth and the security booth, you start to see the differences. The floral Mickey is shaped like a pumpkin, and they've got decorations and bunting everywhere. And it's, it's just a, an absolute amazing transformation. Probably the only other time they – do something like this is during the Christmas party or the Christmas time for the decorations and it's it was quite a treat to see most of the Magic Kingdom decked out in orange and pumpkins everywhere yeah and we'll talk about the differences you know the party versus the non-party but if you think that you go during the day during a non-party day and you've seen all the decorations what you get during the Halloween party is vastly different and very very impressive I think as far as decorations go Oh, I would agree. Not only because it's it's dark and a little bit scarier, but uh, the lighting changes, of course. Uh, they'd done some lighting effects that we had never seen before. A lot of the trees had three or four spotlights on them with purple, orange, and green or yellows. and gave it a real spooky, eerie effect throughout different parts of the parks. And as you mentioned, it's Mickey's not-so-scary Halloween party. So there's nothing that's overtly, they're not jumping out at you, but they are giving you a lot of candy. And, and I just, I still can't get over the candy. Um, and yes, you can take a bag of checked candy on an airplane with you. They will let you do that. Uh, but yeah, the decorations are amazing, and uh, we'll talk about the entertainment later. The entertainment alone was phenomenal. But see, this is why I like you, because you go right to the food. You go right to the yeah, food exactly. aspect of the party. So <laughs> You know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you're getting the kids ready. I've got a, a five-year-old and a nine-year-old, and you're getting them ready. It's like, it's, it's unlimited candy, guys. We can go on the line as much as we want to, over and over and over again. Like, no, no, that's stealing. I was like, no, no, no. We go in over and over and over again, and uh, they uh, when you when you go through the park, if you're just entering the park after the Halloween party has started or right before it started, you can get your bracelet because it's a hard ticketed event, just like the Christmas party and the pirate and the princess parties. You get your bracelet and they hand you a candy bag. It's not the biggest candy bag in the world, but you know you just bring another bag with you to dump the candy into it, and you can get the 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 bracelets, the wrist bracelets at other locations as well. Just have to show them your tickets for the event once you get inside there. Um, but uh, the the candy, yes, the candy was the highlight is what we got the kids <laughs> there. But once they were there and they saw everything that was going on, it was almost harder to get them to go back to the trick-or-treating after they started seeing the other things. Exactly. It, it was interesting. Yeah, because there is so much. And you made a point that, that I wanted to get to, too, which is you got to be clear. This is not an event like the Food and Wine Festival or something like that that just takes place in the evenings. There are specific dates, and I'll post these in the show notes, 
and it is a hard ticket event, so you do have to pay to get in. And it's not the most inexpensive thing in the world. There are premium dates, and again, I'll, I'll list those. And obviously, something like Halloween is going to be a premium date that's actually already sold out. It's, it's been sold out for weeks, yeah. yes. And the cost of that is $55.95 for adults, and that's any child 10 or up as an adult. Trust me, I've been trying to get my kids in. <laughs> and kids ages 3 to 9 are $49.95. There are advanced purchase prices. You get a discount, $48.95 for adults, $42.95 for kids. And like you said, if you're an annual pass holder, if you're a DVC member, and if you purchase in advance, you can get that down about $10 each, $45.95 and $39.95. So... Yeah, that's the reason we, we picked the Tuesday night because it was at the beginning of the week. We figured it would be less crowded, and it was also the vacation club uh, pass rate, which made it a lot easier to spend all that money. Uh, <laughs> but it was for the candy. Right. And that would be the and, first. And the research. The research. <laughs> right. It was the research for the candy. And that would be like the first tip I would give if people say, well, when's the best time to go? I think earlier in the season and definitely during a weeknight because on the Fridays and Saturdays, oh, yeah. too, you're going to get a lot of the locals and come – you know, October 30th, 31st, it's going to be mobbed. And it's still not bad. I mean, I'm not sure if there's a real estimate of how many, how many tickets are sold. Uh, a guess, and this is strictly a guess. Don't, you know, this is not from our Imagineering Labs. But uh, they probably sell less than ten or 15,000 tickets, if not less than 10,000. Uh, wouldn't say for sure. But I've, I've spoken to a couple cast members that I know, and, and they agree with you wholeheartedly. It's... If you can go on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, it's a lot less crowded than Thursday, Friday, Saturday night events because of the locals and the amount of people there. Right. And like you said, the party starts at 7 o'clock. Um, and if you don't have a ticket to the party, that's when cast members will start, you know, sort of shuttling people out who aren't wearing the wristbands. If you're in the park during the day and you have a ticket, you don't have to leave and come back in. You can actually obviously stay there. Um, although, one of my tips, and I thought I would do the tips at the end, but I guess we'll sort of throw them in here and there. <laughs> one of my tips would be I would definitely not try and spend your full day and full night at the Magic Kingdom. Um, I would take a break during the day, go to another park maybe in the morning, go back, relax, George, go put on your costume, whatever it may be, <laughs> then get there as close to 7 o'clock as possible. Exactly, yeah. It's uh, The first night we were there, we were so excited, we didn't pay much attention to what was going on all around us. But when we were there the last night of our stay... They had another Halloween party. We saw a bunch of kids in costumes, and my wife and I were shocked at the amount of kids we saw that were already asleep, and it wasn't even 5.30 in the strollers because it's, you know, the little kids, they can't go. Yeah, sleep late, spend more time at the pool, rest, and, and you know, show up at the park around. It is more crowded at 7, between 7 and the first parade. It's a lot more crowded, but there, there's plenty to do there. Even if it's crowded, it's it's still an amazing event. Yeah, and the one other thing, too, I would say, <clears throat> because, you know, especially if you have kids and you're looking about eating and things like that, during the party, there's only one table service restaurant that's open, and that's Tony's Town Square. Obviously, mm -hmm. like any restaurant, you know, ADRs, they book up very quickly. What I actually suggest doing is maybe if you can, go have dinner, uh, maybe at one of the monorail resorts, you know, go to Ohana's, go to Kona Cafe. Hey, look, go to the California Grill if you want to do that. <laughs> Take With the monorail. Oh, all oh, right. Leave the, listen, who says I take my kid? <laughs> take the monorail over to the Magic Kingdom. Plus two, at the end of the night, George, when everybody else is waiting to get on the monorail, the express monorail back to the TTC, you take the local monorail or one of the boats right back to the resort. 
And there right you back go. To the yep. An interesting thing. Uh, gee, how do we get sidetracked into food again? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we, we made the mistake of taking me hungry when we went there, and I couldn't focus on anything except getting some food. Uh, the restaurants, even the counter service ones, are open, but they're not full menu, and they're not full service. Uh, Pinocchio's Village House is open. They only do cheeseburgers and hot dogs. Cosmic Ray did hot dogs and burgers and chicken nuggets. They don't have the full menu those evenings, so be prepared. You know, it is a reduced menu at the other places, so unless you just want to eat candy all night, which is what I, <laughs> I was did. Saying, there's always funnel cakes over at Sleepy Hollow Refreshments. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> No, no, I had the candy. <laughs> yeah, I so see you keep coming back to the candy. But all right, let's um, let's take a little by little. We hinted about the decorations. And like I said, if you've seen pictures or if you've been during the fall, especially this year, I think the decorations during the day are wonderful. If you think that you've seen everything that Disney has to offer, you are going to be very, very surprised. Because at night, one of the things, George, that I love, the carved pumpkins uh, above the shops on Main Street, the huge inflatables, the characters that are sort of scattered around the parks, and like I said, the lighting effects are just spectacular. Oh, yeah. I mean, the castle's some different colors, a little more orange is thrown in there. But, you know, they have the giant uh, inflatable pumpkin in front of Minnie's house, which we stopped and stared at for a while. And it, it just has such a great atmosphere to it. Spooky music is playing in the background, mostly from the Haunted Mansion. But we did hear some stuff from um, Nightmare Before Christmas and uh, some of the other scarier Disney films. Uh, but, yeah, the, uh, I walked the first day down Main Street in the day like well look at all the pumpkins look at all the pumpkins my kids are going no let's go ride something and at night they were just lit up they had the lights um images of ghosts traveling down the sides of the buildings on main street usa you know instead of having the snow at christmas they had the ghosts flying around the buildings it was it was spectacular we really had a great time with it yeah and like i said part of the appeal of the party is not just the atmosphere and Okay, George, the candy and the trick-or-treating. Yes. <laughs> but there's so much more going on. One thing people I hear talk about all the time, which I think is really not the reason to go to the party, is that because there are relatively so few people in the parks, there are literally almost no wait times for the attractions. And, and not every attraction is open. Most mm -hmm. of the big sort of e-ticket attractions open. There's a bunch of things in Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. You'll get yep. the mountains that are open. But I don't think really... I think that's really secondary to all the other cool stuff that you can do during the party. Oh, completely. I think uh, my my tip for this part of the show, if there's something that you really want to do and it's got a huge line during the day, try to find time to do it. We rode Peter Pan. It was a five-minute wait on Peter Pan. I mean, it was basically just walking through the queue. It was great. That was the only thing we rode that night because we didn't want to wait you know, 30-minute wait during the day. But yeah, you're right. It's With everything else they've got scheduled that evening, they've got dance parties. They've got the villain mix and match mingle at the front of the castle, <laughs> which was hysterical. Um, the different dance parties, the parade, you know, they do the, the parade twice. And of course, hollow wishes. Wow. I mean, just... It, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let, let's start talking specifically about some of the other things we can do. And let's get this out of the way so you can stop talking about it. First okay. of all, you okay. can trick or treat in the park. You're, you're given a bag, yes. both kids and parents, obviously, yep. Georgia. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, and ki look, you can go in costume. Kids can go in costume. Adults can go in costume, within reason, of course. Um, <laughs> and there are designated trick or treat stations. Yeah, they, um, they, the only caution about wearing a costume is no one can wear a costume that covers your eyes as a security method. So 
Don't wear something that completely covers your head. And, and don't try to dress like a cast member either. For some reason, I think they'd frown upon that one. Although the cast members for the Halloween party have a very distinct costume. It's uh, purple and reds and orange and yellows. I thought it looked great, but it was very distinct. But anyways, the trick-or-treating, yes. They hand you a bag when you enter. And, of course, I, we had three or four other tote bags in the backpack that I was carrying just in case. And if I do a quick count looking at my map, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, there were 15 locations you could trick-or-treat. And basically, there was a. Uh, you've seen that. You've seen the You're logo. You're so excited. It's so funny. It was, it was awesome. It was great. It was. Uh, you've you've seen the logo for Goofy's Candy Company. Right. Basically, Goofy's Candy Company is sort of sponsoring the whole evening. They end up the parade. Actually, it's uh, Ghirardelli gave a lot of money. I have to put that in there. Ghirardelli. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, but Goofy's Candy Company sponsors, and there are these large, not balloons necessarily, but they look like balloons. You can see them from hundreds of feet away and that's where the candy is located and there are two to three cast members standing at this gigantic barrel and you just walk by with your bag and you go uh, and they drop candy in it do you have and to actually they, do the grunt or will they just uh, give it to you to, but okay. by, you know at the end of the night they're like come on move along quickly quickly we've got kids <laughs> behind you and uh uh, there were several different locations. Not only were they giving away candy, but there were a couple locations where they're giving away a Pooh Bear card game, which I was like, I don't want this. That's too much fiber for my diet. Um, and they had characters milling around uh, right before. You know, it's like, no, I want the candy, not the characters. Thank you. We ended up leaving with our bags full, the bag in the back. We checked the bag, and oh, the candy was awesome. And it wasn't just kind of the goober candy, you know, that your that the neighbors nobody likes gives you. <laughs> So let me get open the bag here. I mean, there were there yeah, was this is not like dollar store candy. No, no, no. You get Snickers candy. and oh, sweet tarts and <laughs> yep, and and Dum Dums. Oh wait, I'm sorry. Bit of Honey's, Mary Jane's, uh, gigantic Nowerlaters, Necco wafers, um, Bit of Honey's, Bullseyes. It's awesome. It, it, you, and, know, you know, you must have had some sort of thing happened to you in your childhood where you never went trick-or-treating because I've never heard an adult talk about trick-or-treating so enthusiastically. I mean, I'm very excited, but... You know. well, well, no, no, no. It was, it, was, it was such a neat experience because whenever you go trick-or-treating, it's always take the candy home, let's look through it, let's, you know, check everything that you got. This is, hey kids, we're at Disney. Gosh, hopefully they're not going to poison it. But, you know, it was just such an excitement because you're at the Magic Kingdom, you know, the best place in the world, and they're giving you free candy. Well, I, I just think it. that you took your kids just to kind of double and triple up on the candy. Like, hey, what do you got in your bag? All right, cool. Give me something. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the nine year old and I were like, I got this. What'd you get? I got this. And, and you know, I did hear somebody say all I got was a rock, which I thought was great. <laughs> um, it was it was a wonderful time, and the lines moved quickly. You got on both sides of the cast member. They just grabbed a handful of candy, and they dropped it. And if if the kids can hold out. At the end of the night, and this is the second tip or third or fourth, I don't know, it, they take complete handfuls of the candy and put it in your bag. So it's awesome. Yeah, I just, mean, just what you want to do. What you want to do with your kid at the end of the night is give him even more sugar. No, no, that's my bags. <laughs> like All right, daddy's. Let's, if daddy's carrying the bag, I get the candy. That's it. So. Well, you, you know, the adults, the parents do need the sugar at that point because we're carrying exactly. everything in the kids. But All right, exactly. let's talk about some of the other. Okay. Really good stuff that's going on. And and there's a couple of minor things that happen. There's free face painting, again, for yes. adults or kids. Um, that's over near Dumbo. Uh, I know that they used to give 
free pictures. They used to have a free pictures in the rock. Now what they'll do is that they have photo pass photographers everywhere, but you do get a special card with I think it's forty percent off. Yep, the got a discount for the photo passes. Yep, right. read that. The, the of- face paints had huge lines too. It's great to see so many people, you know, waiting. Professional, uh, it, it, professional, uh, like a, a salon chair. You go to your haircut and makeup artists, and they had fifteen to twenty different designs that they could do on the faces. And I mean, adults and children alike lined up. It was great. Well, I, of course, didn't do it. Who wants to hide this beauty? I would, um, anyways, I would have on. paid for that picture. Anyway, there's also, um, like you said, there's a lot of characters. There's a lot of character meet and greets. One of the ones I really, really like is the Cinderella coach over in Fantasyland by the old Skyway entrance. Oh, you, you can't miss that. You turn around the carousel, and you see this huge, bright white light, and it's the uh, it's it's Cinderella's car- I mean, it's her coach right there, and it's like, it was, wow. And there was a candy display next to it. Yeah. Well, Did I tell you that? Okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I'm sure I wish there was video out there of you at one of the dance parties. There's Ariel's Grotto in Fantasyland has one. <laughs> the other one is Stitch's Costume yes. Dance Party in, yes. in Tomorrowland. We, we, we ate a Cosmic Rays while that was going on, and it was great. They played a lot of 70s dance music. Stitch was there with Lilo. Uh, with, yeah, with Lilo. He was dressed up like... Elvis, she was dressed up like herself. The DJ was out there throwing candy at people. And at the end of the dance party, you could come up the stage and they'd give you more candy. It was great. <laughs> and they did the same thing with Ariel's Grotto. Uh, that was more of a, that was with Donald, I believe. And it was more contemporary pop R&B hits. And they gave you more candy at the end. It was great. <laughs> yeah, and those take place every hour from 7 yes. to 11. Um, so, and, and, that's the one thing we'll point out, too, is there are certain times for these things. You need to sort of to time your stuff right, especially as we start getting to talk about, I guess, really the big three that take place. And the first one is the Villains Mix and Mingle show, and that takes place over on the Castle Forecourt stage, obviously with villains like Jafar, Maleficent, Cruella, uh, Captain Hook, uh, mm-hmm. Frollo's there. Tell, did you get a chance to see the show? Yeah. We saw it while we were waiting for the second parade <laughs> and heard most of it as well. It, it's a fun show. It, I was really thinking, wow, I've, I've played these songs on Guitar Hero on the Xbox. It, it was really great, cheesy, early 90s hair metal sound. It was great for the villains. And it, it was just a fun show. It was almost like a, a mini Fantasmic, but without Mickey, where they sort of got to take over and talk about themselves. It was fun. You are supposed to get up and dance. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and that takes place at 745, 9, 10.05, yeah. 11.15, which is good because if you've got kids and you want to get them to see the stuff early before they completely pass out from, you know, coming down off their sugar highs. The sugar you, high. Right. Or if you want to get there late, if you're going with a, a group of adults, and I've gone there without my kids before, you can go and wait. Yeah, I know. Shocker. You can wait to see one of the later shows because you yeah. also have to time it with, I think, the two sort of best things to see and, and really the reasons why to go. And we'll start off with Mickey's not-so-scary boo-to-you Halloween parade. And Oh, you had to say boo-to-you. I'm going to sing that all night now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this, that, to me, is worth the price of admission. And I am not normally a huge parade guy. No, I use parades for getting on the rides quicker. You know, <laughs> that's the, or, or taking more pictures without people around. Um, the, uh, the Mickey's the... I'm going to start singing. The Boo to You Parade is is fantastic. I, I mean, it starts off, and, and I remember hearing, I think a year ago, you and somebody else, I'm not sure who that was, talking about the parade and the Headless Horseman. 
I've a tale to tell I hope you'll follow. Of a legend born in Sleepy Hollow, a headless horseman rode through the night on a great black steed with a pumpkin bright. It's said he's tired of his flaming top, so he's looking for a head to swap. Beware, he may soon be in sight. The headless horseman rides tonight. And my kids were half psyched, half scared to death. Is he really headless? Well, how, how does he have a head? Where is it? Well, Daddy, what do you mean? What do you mean he doesn't have a head? I'm like, just sit here, please, just watch. Uh, right before, about five minutes before the parade gets to you, the uh, parade people come by, get your feet off the curb, sit back. We don't know where the horse is going. This is a real horse with a real rider. You know, holding the pumpkin, it's got no head, comes tearing down Main Street. We were sitting halfway between the hub and halfway between um, the beginning of the shops at Main Street USA, and he just came around the hub and the statue. And he's hauling. Felt like nine, yeah, felt like 90 <laughs> miles an hour, and he goes in front of us like, whoa, what was that? Wow, that was, that was really scary. Uh, <laughs> it was phenomenal. I mean, just to see the real horse there. And then a few minutes later, you get the, the the parades, and and you get the first parade float is Mickey and Minnie and Donald and Daisy dressed up, and then they take you through various other floats. And the great thing about this parade is they're mostly themed after the attractions, which is wonderful. A Pirates of the Caribbean attraction with the dancers. Um, there was a Splash Mountain attraction. There was a Country Bear Jamboree float with dancers, and of course the best one was the Haunted Mansion. Yeah, you've got to you've got to oh. stop right there. You've got to stop oh, at the haunted mansion okay. yes. because the if you haven't seen it, you, you you have to. And if you have seen it, you know we're talking about the grave diggers that oh, follow the, the float. Phenomenal! Wow. Uh, the 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 float itself had the the three ghosts, Gus Ezra, and well, I I need to grab Lou's trivia book to find that <laughs> one. Shameless and plug. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the ghosts are on there, and of course they're doing their little hitchhiking dance. And behind them come uh, the the butlers, so to speak, with the shovels, the grave diggers, and they do a dance routine, very much in the style of if they were carrying rifles or muskets, like a parade route. And at one point they start banging the shovels together, and you're like, wow. And of course they never break character. They always look scary. Um, it, 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 it was an amazing float. Absolutely amazing. I loved it. And then the, the very last float was the Goofy candy, Goofy's Candy Company float. Yeah, it goes yeah. like from the dark <laughs> side to the light yeah. side sort of very quickly. You know, my wife kind of looks at me like, wow, okay, they went from, you know, you had Mickey and then you get uh, the Tigger and Pooh float from the Adventures of Winnie the Pooh and then you get the Pirates. Ooh, that's kind of scary. Well, that's Splash Mountain, yeah. A haunted Mansion, fog, smoke, the scary stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got the ballroom dancers there as well, which is fantastic. They had the ballroom dancers. And then, oh, okay, here comes Goofy driving a big yellow truck. <laughs> and, and, and look, and, George, he has candy. He's got candy. And yes, they were throwing candy. Of course, I'm grabbing, I'm snatching candy from the three-year-old next to me going, you don't need that. And the, the more of the Goofy's Candy Company people come walking around, and they're like, open your bag, and they dump more candy in it. And the bubbles coming out of Goofy's candy machine smelled like strawberries and raspberries. It was, and of course, my nine-year-old's trying to eat them, going, but I don't taste anything. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, it's, it's 11 o'clock at night. We need to get these kids home. Um, 
but yeah, the, the parade was phenomenal, and it, just great to see what Disney was able to do with the the different attraction floats. It was yeah. awesome. With, and with candy, candy at the end. Candy at the end, but again, timing is everything. You got to time it right, because that, that parade takes place, fortunately, twice during the night. It's at 8.15 and again at 10.30, and you'll yes. see a lot of the younger kids after the per- first parade and after the fireworks, a, a lot of the people really start to, to clear out. Yep, and that's we've we've heard that before about the Christmas party. That you know, it's uh, if you can miss the first parade, do something else. The last one's going to be a lot less crowded, and it was. I was really shocked when we had we had skirted the hub a couple times, you know, getting candy <clears throat> back and forth. And during the first parade before Halloween, it was obviously standing standing room only. And from there, it the second parade, we sat right there on Main Street, nobody around us. It was a great location. Right. So, and, yeah, do and, the second parade. Yeah, and if you find the right spot, I mean, you can sort of plant yourself down for a while, and you can catch the parade. You can catch mm-hmm. the uh, mix and mingle party, and then really cap your night off with the happy Hollowishes fireworks. The, the grim grinning ghosts come out to socialize. Oh. That's at 930. And, <sighs> again, you think that they can't do something like topping wishes, but I just think that the fireworks show and the music and the lighting is just outstanding. It, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and most of us, you know, hopefully most of the listeners have seen Wishes, which is one of the most amazing. I mean, I can't, between Wishes, Illuminations, and Fantasmic, I can't pick a favorite. I love them all. But it, uh, it was mind-blowing how much, it, it's like the Christmas version of Wishes. The finale is all around you. They bring the uh, uh, it focuses a lot on the Nightmare Before Christmas and the Haunted Mansion. They bring the music into it. They bring some of the narration. Uh, you see the different, uh, just like with Wishes, they they put the characters on the the castle. Uh, it, it's just it's phenomenal. Doesn't make you as teary eyed as Wishes <laughs> does, but it's it's a great and you can't miss it. And you definitely want to see it from in front of the castle. Uh, I've seen seen. The Christmas version of Wishes from behind the castle, and it's astounding because the fireworks are going over your head, but you miss most of the story. Mm-hmm. But you can see it from anywhere in the Magic Kingdom. But yeah, you can't miss Hollow Wishes. It's it's incredible. Right, and, that, incredible. and that's exactly what I like. Is there is a story that follows the the the, the Hollow Wishes thing, and it's about you know trick or treaters ringing the door, and then these other yeah. villains who are trick or treaters, and again, not to spoil it, but I just love <laughs> the music from. The uh, the familiar music from all the different films, and like I said, the fireworks, unlike a normal wishes fireworks, are totally perimeter fireworks. So they're not just yes. going to be behind the castle; they're going to be all around you, and it it really, really is spectacular. And I think it may very well be the best of the best of all the fireworks shows, or especially the special event fireworks shows. It, yeah, it's wonderful, and it's. It's it's worth it to be there. Uh, the, what you said earlier, the parade and Hollow Wishes is worth the price of admission. They're absolutely amazing just to, to top the night off. And after Hollow Wishes, most people evacuate the park, which means... George can go get more candy. candy. <laughs> <Yeah>. um. <laughs> now, let me ask you, did you guys go over, and I think that this is new this year. I don't remember seeing it last year. Was the Alice and Mad Hatter's yeah. treat party. Yeah. Yes. In a little, which is, I think, kind of a hidden treasure because that area, I think, a lot of people don't even know exists oh, back there. It's one of my favorite walks. Is the walk between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland behind Space Mountain, and comes out almost right by where um, 
right where the train is in Mickey's Toontown Fair. Sorry, not Fantasyland. But yeah, they, they this year they set up a trick-or-treat trail. Actually, it was called the Alice in Manhattan's Treat Party, but somebody referred to it as a trick-or-treat trail. The one thing about the, the trick-or-treat uh, places, you do have to follow the rules. You can't go in backwards and try to get the candy. you got to follow the lines. Don't go in the exit. You'll get in trouble. Not sounds that like I did that. Yeah, sounds like you know from experience. Uh, no, no. Yeah, we walked around the other side. We can go in here. No, we can't. Oh, man, we got to walk all the way around. But it's – you start off uh, down there by uh, Goofy's Barnstormer, and you basically walk up the trail. All the cast members are dressed up like the deck of cards, which is fantastic. We saw Alice was in there. The Mad Hatter was in there. Before we actually went into the trick-or-treat trail, the walrus was there, which I have only seen. That's the only time I've ever seen him in a character. And I was like, we need to stop and get a picture. No, no, candy. we got to get candy. got to do the candy first. And, and there are one, two, three, four, four candy locations just in the trick-or-treat trail alone. <laughs> which is great, you know, and they wouldn't let me walk backwards. Um, but we did do that one, I think, only three times because the, the boys were like, let's do something else, Daddy. I was like, are you sure? Yeah, let's do something else. <laughs> Let, let's, let's make it clear to people that there is more to do there than getting candy. Yes, there is more than <laughs> of course, candy. Of course, I know what to get you for Christmas. And one thing that we didn't exactly. mention, and I wanted to save this for last because it's not something that's on the schedule. It's something that, that is going throughout the night. But it's something I really, really, really enjoyed last year. I don't know if you got a chance to see it. But on the front lawn of the Haunted Mansion is this woman spirit from beyond who is out there and she's very funny. She's very interactive with the guests. Uh, They do an incredible job of lighting and putting fog effects in front of the Haunted Mansion. And I think she is wonderful. And, And a lot of people, myself included, will often stop in line just to listen to her or talk to her, interact with her. No, we didn't see that. See, now I got to go back down. When's the next one? I've got to see that one. When is it? So, no, no, we missed that totally because we, you know, I was too busy with my face in a bag of candy, I guess, at that point in time. Uh, And oddly (laughs) enough, we should say, too, believe it or not, I mean, nothing, there's nothing different about the Haunted Mansion. There is no overlay, there's no Nightmare Before Christmas overlay like takes place in Disneyland. But obviously, because it's a Halloween party, the Haunted Mansion is going to have probably the longest lines of anything that you'll see all night. That's probably why we avoided it. The boys were like, no, let's not ride it tonight. I was like, what are you, scared? <laughs> and well, no, never mind. But yeah, it, was, it, was, it wasn't as crowded, which was great. We really enjoyed it. Um, one thing that we didn't talk about too much so far were the costumes that people were wearing. We mentioned that you could wear it, but I was completely astounded at the quality and the intelligence that went behind the costumes. <laughs> I mean, I was... Uh, you saw everything from, you know, the people walking around dressed up as their favorite characters to families that went together as groups. I saw uh, a dad dressed up, and I'll refer to them as classic Han Solo, and then Princess Leia from Episode Four. The little baby that was in the strollers dressed up as C-3PO, and they had two Padawans with them as the older children. <laughs> I mean, it was everywhere. I mean, I saw so many Tinkerbells, I couldn't believe it. That was the most popular costume. Or Tinkerbells, uh, lots of Woodies and Jessies and Buzz Lightyears, and I actually it, it seemed to be a lot of fun for people to stop and ask to take their pictures with the other guests because the costumes were so great. And the thing is, too, you're not talking about just kids because I've gone and see, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not groups. They, they are packs of adults all dressed like pirates or all dressed like yes. ghosts from the haunted. I mean, people really go all out, you know, with some very elaborate 
And depending on how the weather is, sometimes some <laughs> probably very hot costumes, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we rode the tram from the parking lot over, and we sat behind three witches, and the boys were like, um, what's going on? <laughs> I was like, yeah, you don't want to know. But, yeah, the costumes were fantastic. And the regular cast members on duty, I would just use the word regular, for like the attraction cast members, had their faces painted as well. The cast members from the Haunted Mansion and the Liberty Tree area had that ghostly pallor type makeup on their face and everybody was just into it yeah. it was absolutely one the costumes it, it would have been fun just for that just to walk around i did see like i mentioned earlier a couple uh, while we we're waiting for the parade there was a great uh woody across the street and a, a jesse people were asking if their pictures taken with them and they weren't the real disney characters they were yeah. just people at the halloween party it was great yeah, great. there there was there was uh, three guys actually. They had they were on my forums. And they sent me the pictures last year. Uh, dressed up as the three hitchhiking ghosts, and they also oh. had a, a a maid and a butler. I mean, they they looked as though they should have been cast members, or that they were cast members in costume. But the other thing I wanted to mention too, when we touched on it briefly, was the music that you hear throughout the parks. Not just the, the I think the wonderful Boo You Halloween uh, parade music, but some of the music. Now you can actually get that on a CD. For years it was unavailable, but now as of this year, you can get the Magic Kingdom event party music CD. Oh, yeah. That also has the okay. Pirate and Princess party music, but I know a lot of people always ask me about the Halloween music. Now you mm -hmm. can get that as well. But here's the question for you, George. You said this yes. was your first time going. Uh, you were kind enough to take your family so your kids can carry your candy. <laughs> the question people always ask is, you know, is it worth it? You know, would you go it again? Would you recommend it to to other people? Oh yes, without a doubt. I mean, this wasn't. It, we didn't know what to expect. We had visited the website. If you visit Disney World's website, they've got a great flash animation site that takes you through it. I had read reviews on websites, knew what was going to happen to it or happened there. It was it was wonderful, absolutely amazing. It, it exceeded all my expectations for the evening, even though I was focused on the candy. Seeing uh, Stitch and Stitch dances Elvis and getting all the kids up there on the stage dancing with them, seeing the parents and the children enjoying themselves in a really great, safe environment, all dressed up, having the time of their lives, it was great. My boys still talk about the parade. They still talked about Hollow Wishes and seeing the fireworks over the castle. It was it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. So yes, yes, I, that's that's a yes, and totally and totally worth the money. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. But you, you have to go. You have to go to the Halloween party with the intent of either taking advantage of no lines and riding the attractions or over, sort of like how they used to have the e-ride nights many years mm -hmm. ago, or going to enjoy all the Halloween stuff and really not focusing on the rides. Maybe hitting a favorite. Right. But even though it is an additional, you know, it's a half-day price admission, basically, you know, since we're up so high now with the admission prices, well worth it. We would definitely do it again. Uh, we were talking about it before as a family and loved it. Kids aren't as excited about the candy anymore. I don't know why. <laughs> but uh, neither, are the, neither are the listeners, Alan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yes, you can't take a bag of candy plane and check it. They will let you check it, but that's one of your personal items. Gosh. <laughs> Well, I, I guess that's good to know. I'm surprised you didn't eat it all while you were there. But, like, you know what? I actually think, and I, I think the best way to get the most of it, I'd say you don't feel like it wasn't a waste of money, especially because this isn't the, the busiest time of year, too, is don't go there saying, this is my chance to get on the rides, to get on Splash Mountain with no weight. Go there to take advantage 
of what Disney does because nobody does Halloween or any of the other holidays like Disney. And like you said, there are other places around that you can go in Orlando, but certainly, certainly not, not kid friendly um, in this kind of environment. There's so much going on. There's so much to take advantage of. There's so much to enjoy that from that seven o'clock to midnight or whenever they finally give George's last bag of candy and throw him out. Uh, I agree with you. I, I think you totally can get your money's worth if you go in and enjoy the party the right way. And hopefully that's what we were able to do um, here in this segment. So, uh, George, I, I want to thank you for, for schlepping your family down and thank your kids for me for, for getting online over and over again for the Halloween party. Uh, to find out more about George and his uh, much more talented brother, Andrew, you can go over to ImagineNerding.com. I'll put a link up in the show notes. Yeah, George, take your 10 seconds, plug the blog, tell everybody what it is. Wow. Well, Imagine Nerding started off as just a place to talk about the little details. <clears throat> but, <laughs> but we've really focused on talking about a lot of the books that have put out by Disney World. And we just like sharing cool stuff about the theme parks and books. And there's free and, candy. And you go to Imagine Nerding to get free candy. Yes, yes. Paid for by the WW Radio <laughs> Show. Um <laughs> yeah, my kids said, Lou, all they want for Christmas is an autographed copy of your book. That's all that they want. That's you it. don't need to plug anymore. You've been on the show, and you'll be back. George has obviously been on the show before. We've talked about some of our favorite books from our yes. Disney libraries. Uh, it is definitely time to get one of those in there again, so we'll have to to dust off some of our dust jackets and see what we'll cover next on the show. But, George, seriously, man, thanks very much for coming on again. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, Lou. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in again this week. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to sit down with me as we talk about some of that Disney magic that we all enjoy so much. Thanks also to Jim Corcus and George Taylor. And if you're going to be down in the Apex, North Carolina area on Tuesday night, October 14th, you can go and meet George in person at the Eva Perry Regional Library. Get there early, get in line, and please, if you plan on heckling him, please don't mention my name. Speaking of what's going on this week, I am heading down to Walt Disney World on Monday to do a couple of things for the show. I have a few things lined up while I'm there that I hope you're really going to enjoy. Now, when I was there a couple of weeks ago, I had an idea while I was in the parks and updating my Twitter account to play a new game that a lot of you seem to enjoy, so I'm going to do it again this week. What I like to do when I'm in the parks is post some mini updates via Twitter, which you can follow over at twitter.com slash There you'll get automatic updates like I said, especially when I'm down at Walt Disney World and in the parks. They can be just about anything from where I am, what I'm doing, or even an instant photo right from an attraction. Now, on my last trip down, I started to play a game out of my Twitter posts called Where in the World is Lou? And I would just simply post a photo to Twitter and ask you to try and guess where in Walt Disney World I was. And you could reply by posting to Twitter, which is free to join, and I'm going to do it again all week this week, starting on Monday, October 13th. So stay tuned. Again, that's twitter.com slash You can come on by and play. Follow my blog updates as well. And speaking of my trip down to Walt Disney World this week, I just realized that I'm going to be there when the Giants are playing on Monday night. 
So I now need to find a place to hunker down and watch the game. And I'm thinking maybe ESPN Club over at Disney's Boardwalk. So if you're going to be down there, you want to watch the game, shoot me over an email or follow my Twitter posts. Come on by and say hello. The first round of wings are on me. And yes, even if you are a Cleveland Browns fan. More updates. I am happy to announce that Celebrations Magazine, issue one, is literally rolling off the printer's presses as we speak. Well, as I speak. So look for your copy coming in the mail soon if you subscribed. If you have not subscribed as yet, you can still get the first issue delivered right to your door. Visit celebrationspress.com. There's a link in our show notes. And don't forget that you can be a part of the magazine. We're looking for you to submit your photos, your emails, your questions, your comments, anything you might like to see covered in the magazine. You can send that letter to Tim and I just by emailing me at lou at wdwradio.com. And as long as I'm plugging away, just a quick reminder that the holidays are rapidly approaching. And really, who wouldn't want to find a Walt Disney World page-a-day calendar under the tree in their stocking or on their desk? Probably a lot of people, but that's okay because it still makes a great stocking stuffer, office gift, and really nothing says I love you like a page-a-day calendar. So every day on the calendar is filled with trivia facts and history. The weekends have puzzles and games. There's even a cool little flipbook animation on the bottom, thanks to Tim Foster. They're just $10. They are available over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. You can find the link on the, on the site's homepage. And as the holidays approach, so does MouseFest. I am going to have a MouseFest show in the next couple of weeks, and we'll be discussing my meets there as well. But in the meantime, you can go and visit the MouseFest.org page for more information about this year's events. You can also register there and get the free newsletter. And if you are going to be going to MouseFest this year, please come on by over at the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. There's a MouseFest sort of who's going, want to meet thread. Go, just post, let us know that you're going to be coming by. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, including MouseFan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider for all of your vacation planning needs. You can go visit them at MouseFanTravel.com. All-Star Vacation Homes, they still have an exclusive discount for listeners where you can get a free rental car and a $50 gas card. And over at Owner's Locker, they also have an exclusive offer still going for $50 off the sign-up fee. You know I love my Owner's Locker, and I cannot imagine vacationing without it. Details and links about all these offers are over on this week's show notes over at wdwradio.com. I am still really excited about what's coming up on the show, including some things I'm heading down for next week, some more interviews I have planned, new segments and features, some things I can't tell you about yet, some live updates in the parks, and so, so much more. But remember, I still want you to be a part of the show. So send me your emails, your questions, your comments, suggestions, anything at all to lou at wdwradio.com or call the voicemail and be on the air. You can call 206 202 for WDW. That's 206-202-4939. I love when you call from the parks. If you have comments, questions, just to say hi, you want to talk about anything that I mentioned on the show, feel free. And if you have a show suggestion that you think might that you might be the perfect guest for, email me those as well. You never know. Maybe come on the air and join me. To comment on or talk about the show with other listeners, visit the WDW Radio Show forums. Those are over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. And as always, Please, if you like the show, help spread the word, let others know about it, review us on iTunes, come over, say hi on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter. 
And I really want to say thanks again for taking the time and tuning in. It really means a lot to me, and I really do appreciate it. Hope you all have a great week. I'll talk to you guys online. See ya. Hey, Lou. This is Woody and... Susie. And we're here at the Magic Kingdom on the Not-So-Scary Halloween Party Night, and we're having an absolutely fabulous time. Wish you were here. We have... Uh, Focus more on food on this trip, thanks to you. We've stopped at uh, what we went to Wave, and we went to Boma, and we went to the Yak and Yeti, and all were fantastic. And thanks for your recommendation. Uh, just wanted to call and say hello from the park because that seemed like the right thing to do. Thanks so much for being our radio host, and uh, have a great day. Happy Halloween. Bye bye. Hey, it's David from Arizona. Just was listening to you and Tim go over the top ten sounds, and there's a couple that I thought of that uh, you didn't list. Uh, one is the chime of your ticket going through the turnstile. That's always uh, an exciting moment. Um, another one is the sound of all of the seatbelts releasing on Star Tours or Soarin' or uh, Twilight Zone. Just that sound of you know 20 or 30 seatbelts all releasing at the same time always uh, always gets me uh, excited and, and know you're in the park and uh, just had a great ride and uh, and just a, another fun day. So those are just a couple of the ones that I thought of. Um, another one on Star Tours is the chime as it opens the doors and it's ready for loading. So I know you as a Star Wars fan probably can relate to that. So, hey, keep up the great work. Enjoy the show, and uh, let's have some more top tens. Thanks a lot. Hey, Lou, this is Mike at Bayside Marina, and me and Todd are going to give you our favorite sound at Walt Disney World. Ready, Todd? Hold on, Lou. Here you go. That's Breathless 2 being fired up at Bayside Marina, and I want to remind everybody that Breathless 2 is not just for fireworks. That any time from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., seven days a week, just come down Bayside Marina and take a half-hour ride on Breathless for just uh, just around $100 for a half-hour ride, and that would be up to six guests. And uh, if you come on Sundays, you'll have me driving. Thanks, Lou. Take care. Great show. Hi, Lou. This is Phil from Albany, New York. And uh, I just finished listening to uh, every show you've done uh, with this current podcast. And that's got to be hundreds of hours, thousands of hours of, of uh, programming there. And uh, I felt like there was something I had to do to thank you. So I, I just went on and bought uh, both of the audio guides for Main Street and for Adventureland. Uh, and they're both great. So keep, uh, keep the audio guides coming. And uh, the least we can do to thank you for all the hours you put in is, is to buy a few audio guides here and there. Thank you very much, Lou. Have a great day.